0: Well, we are engaged in a study of Romans chapter 7, 7 through 24, asking the question that has echoed throughout the ages, church ages, and that is, is Paul describing the normal Christian life? That is to say, is the struggle with sin in the flesh under the law the normal Christian life? And if it isn't what Paul is addressing here, what is he saying? And of course, that leaves the question still unanswered. What is the normal Christian life? So we began this study by looking at the historic background of the letter to the Romans. The history of the Roman Empire and how the Jews were expelled from Rome by Claudius in AD 49 and uh, Claudius didn't ask if you were a Jewish Christian or not. He just said, if you're of Jewish heritage, you must leave Rome. And when the Jews were ultimately uh, allowed to come back to Rome, they found a church that had become largely Gentile in its character. And while the Jews were now Christians themselves, they wanted to be able to maintain some of their Jewish heritage. For instance, Uh, the keeping of of a Sabbath or uh, certain dietary laws, things that weren't uh, required for salvation were not required in the law anymore, but they had nonetheless developed as their traditions and they wanted to keep those. Of course, the Jews did not. And because the Jews were in charge of the church at that point, they were the dominant um, uh, race within the church, um, the Jews felt uh, put upon. They felt separate from. And so they formed a separate church. The Jews uh, developed their own Christian church. It was a network of home churches anyway. And so there came this divide in the Roman church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And apostle, the Apostle Paul hears of this, and, and he finds it absolutely abhorrent. It's, it's the anti-gospel There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. There is no bond or free. There's only one new creation in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is addressing this uh, issue with Jews and Gentiles on the basis that there is one gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And so The issue of justification by faith alone is certainly something that Paul hammers on here, but he's doing so not simply because he wants to make that doctrine, that precious doctrine known of justification. He's doing so because he wants the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome to realize that they are equally disadvantaged under sin, and they're equally advantaged in Christ and that the law has been fulfilled in Christ, that no one is under the law, no Christian is under the law anymore, and that the entrance points, the entrance requirements into the people of God are no longer Jewish identity markers under the law. The entrance points into the people of God is the gift of the Spirit, which has been poured out equally upon Jew and Gentile. So that there's no longer any ethnic divide. There is one new man in Christ Jesus. And the unity that we find now is the unity of the Spirit. It isn't a unity based upon ethnic lines, it's a unity of the Spirit. And then we began to look at the greater context of our uh, text. We looked at Romans chapter 7, 1 through 6. And we learned from that that Christians have been released from the law, that we have died to the law. And having been released from that which once bound us, we have now been uh, released so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So we concluded at that point that, The normal Christian life is the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. And when you contrast that to Romans 7.14, where he says quite clearly, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, that he can't be speaking of a Christian at that point. He cannot be speaking of a regenerate person in Christ. Because you can't have it both ways. Romans 6 and uh, the first six verses of Romans 7 teach quite clearly that we have died to sin. We have died to the law. That sin is no longer our master. That we belong to another, namely him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And again, so that we serve now in the new way of the Spirit. So, Romans 7, based upon that one verse, verse 14, simply cannot be addressing a regenerate person. So, who is Paul addressing? Well, we've concluded through our study that that Paul is addressing his brothers and sisters in Rome who are of Jewish heritage, including Gentiles who may have, converted to Judaism before they were in Christ he's speaking to those who know the law and he's reminding them that they have no advantage under the law he's reminding them not to to revert back to thinking the law is something that was part of their christian uh, normal Christian life he's reminding them of what it was like to be a Jew and be um, have a high view of the law. Have hold the law in high esteem, which every good Orthodox Jew did, believer or unbeliever. And realize that you can't keep it. To realize that in your flesh you cannot keep the law for a moment. And the peril of that, the fear that that imparts, the despair that that brings, because there is. A divine appointed day, a divinely appointed day of reckoning, coming. A uh, eschatological day of condemnation that awaits those who do not fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. So then we discovered, however, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through... Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So this is a very Trinitarian gospel that you and I have been saved under. It is a gospel that is affected by the Spirit. Uh, the, the cross was absolutely sufficient. The resurrection was absolutely adequate. The for our justification, but those even the work of Christ would not be effective if it were not for the Spirit. So the the uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a Trinitarian gospel: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sadly, since the Reformation, we have moved. Not deliberately, perhaps, but by default, away from our awareness of just how significant the role of the Holy Spirit is in our salvation. We understand, conceptually at least, that he is. But we forget that under the new covenant, the new covenant itself is the covenant of the Spirit. And so we are subject to the Spirit. We, in fact, find in Romans at chapter 8 that if, we're, if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, that we are not a Christian. So the chief marker of what determines whether or not you are in the people of God and stay in the people of God is the presence of the Holy Spirit within you and among you within the community. God's own presence is the chief marker that sets out the people of God, apart from the world. And what's more than that? The indwelling spirit is the replacement for the external Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the the law. So that the law become descriptive to us, we still see value in those first five books, but they are not prescriptive. The prescriptive, normal Christian life is found as life in the Spirit, not in the written code. So let me say that again. Very important principle. The indwelling Holy Spirit, who writes the law upon your hearts and your minds, who causes you to keep God's decrees and His ways, who creates in you a new nature whereby you love God and love neighbor and fulfill where the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled is the replacement for Torah to the people of God. And that has been the great controversy throughout church history. Is is first, it was the Judaizers. They could not let go of both the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant fully. And so they sought to convolute the new covenant with the old covenant and created what Paul called in Galatians chapter 1, another gospel. And beloved, that has been the struggle now for 2,000 years. And it remains the struggle today. There are still those who peddle the word of God. There are still those who are credentialed men and even women. There are those who are have their letters of commendation from seminaries and hold positions of authority within the church who convolute the new covenant and the old covenant just like the Judaizers did. And so negate and dismiss the holy new covenant aspect of the New Covenant. Although Jesus bled and died to consecrate that New Covenant, they still nonetheless reach back into the Old Covenant, pull things forward in order to force the issue of the Old Covenant law. It's as if we cannot accept that the good news is truly good news. It's as if we cannot accept that the gospel is truly the gospel of grace and that grace is all-sufficient. So the common error throughout, and even the heresy throughout church history, has been to assume that grace, while necessary, is not sufficient. That Christ's sacrifice and even his resurrection, while absolutely necessary, are not sufficient. And that the work of the Holy Spirit, while necessary, is not adequate. But that we must also add our own works to the uh, recipe, if you will, of salvation. So that it comes out that ultimately, Christianity is a self-salvation program. That's the teaching of Roman Catholicism. That's the teaching of Greek Orthodoxy. That's the teaching of many even within Protestant circles. There are those today who truly believe that salvation ultimately is not a divine accomplishment, but a human achievement. Although, although they'll hasten to say it's by grace. Oh yes, we have to have grace. But they'll dismiss grace as sufficient, all sufficient. They'll say we must believe in Jesus. But we must, but Jesus needs us too. He can't do it without me too, and that's not the gospel. Certainly not the gospel of the new covenant. So today uh, we have been looking at, um, let's see, we were at Romans eight last time when we talked about the groaning. Of those who are in un, under the new covenant, who are in the realm of the Spirit. But nonetheless, we have yet to have our mortal bodies fully redeemed. We are uh, carrying around unredeemed bodies. So we're waiting for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so, like the creation itself, we who had the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so how are we to handle this? How are we to understand this fact that while we are truly new creations inwardly, that we have the mind of Christ, that we have the very Spirit of God dwelling within us, how are we to reconcile the fact that we still have these unredeemed bodies. You realize, of course, that your body, your present body, is not going to go with you when you die. It belongs to this old creation. It's going to return to dust. And you will one day, upon the return of the Lord Jesus, at the final resurrection, you will receive a new glorified body after his glorified image. And so we are awaiting that. So we are in a state of now, or already, and not yet. We are redeemed. And we have yet to fully realize that redemption and the redemption of our bodies. So how does that affect the normal Christian life? Well, we talked last time about how that the Spirit intercedes even then. The Spirit intercedes so that we're able to put to death the misdeeds of the body uh, simply by walking in the Spirit. You cannot fulfill the lusts of the flesh while you are walking in the Spirit. And since you wa- live and dwell and belong to the realm of the Spirit, the flesh does not have its demand on you. It cannot force you to fulfill its desires. Do you realize that you don't have to sin? That's the difference between regenerate and unregenerate. You don't have to sin. We are under obligation Paul says in Romans 8:12 but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live so we have been given the power to walk as Jesus walked we are no longer under obligation to the flesh We, in many respects, don't even have to struggle with the flesh. We simply need to say no to the flesh and to say yes to walking in the Spirit. Someone might ask, well, how do we walk in the Spirit? And the answer to that is one footstep at a time. It's a heart matter, it's a mind matter. We have to long to walk in the Spirit. We have to trust, just like we do with all aspects of salvation. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so we walk in reliance with the Spirit, trusting the Spirit to empower us, to preserve us, to guide us, to lead us. And He does. God is for us. Well, and then so we learn that the Spirit even intercedes in our prayer time with groanings which cannot be uttered. And that, consequently, we have the the very presence of God at work in our lives, so that we can trust that all things work together for good to those who have been called according to the glorious purpose of being conformed into the image of God's Son. And that the salvation that we possess is an accomplished salvation. The jury is no longer out, folks. That's the glorious good news of the new covenant, is that the jury is no longer out. Ours is an eschatological salvation. Now, that big word, eschatological, simply means it's an end-time salvation. It is the salvation that fully awaits for us on that final day, but has been brought forward into history into your present moment. And it is nonetheless, because it is eschatological, because it does represent the determination, the judgment of that last day, that judgment has been laid on Jesus and not on you. And so there's no day after tomorrow when it comes to um, judgment day. When God closes this up and creates a new heaven and a new earth for us, we well, There will no, be no more tomorrow. This is it. There's nothing left to be decided. So we learn, finally, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified justification is not the end result of our faith. Glorification is the end result of our faith. So now, if we were to close out our series, we would do so by going right into Romans eight thirty one through 39. But I want to postpone that because I don't know that we have spent enough time on this issue of walking around groaning in this present unredeemed body. And If we're not careful, we will default back to Romans chapter 7, 7 through 24, like living, where we are focused on the groaning rather than the power of the Spirit. And so we need to move beyond Romans today by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and then we'll go into chapter 3, and into chapter 4, So we have a little ground to cover today, but it won't take all that much time. uh, And you can read it for yourself in the meantime, afterward as well, and study and meditate on it. What I want to do today is introduce you to the ministry of the New Covenant. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk to you about the effects of that ministry on your life. Today, we will probably only be able to get so far as to talk about the ministers of the New Covenant. So the ministers of the New Covenant, the ministry of the New Covenant, and the effects of that ministry on your life. And I think what you'll discover is that there's very little actual ministry occurring in the churches today. There's very little ministry actually occurring in the world today. There's a lot of talk, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of religiosity, there's a lot of law-keeping, there's a lot of convoluted ministry, there's a lot of people peddling the Word of God, but there's very little New Covenant ministry. So, we would title this session, New Covenant Ministry. So, let's look at that text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and what we'll do today is we'll go through Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, down through verse six of chapter three, and then we'll pick it up there next time. So second chapter of Corinthians, or second Corinthians chapter two, uh, beginning at verse 12. Paul is speaking here, of course. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, We do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully and inspired and errant word. Amen. So what we have here is Paul defining himself and his associates as ministers of the new covenant. And he's setting forward a study in contrasts. He begins to say that he and his associates are, thanks be to God, that Christ always leads them in triumphal procession. Christ, of course, being at the head of that procession. Paul suffered more than most anyone of of record. Uh, I don't know of any other apostle that suffered more during his ministry than Paul the apostle. And yet he can proclaim that he is in a triumphal procession. And that Christ is leading that procession. And he leads them in that procession. So despite all the suffering, despite all the persecution, despite all the conflict, there is a sense of victory, a sense of triumph that he carries about in his ministry. And it isn't tied to his ability. It's tied to God's ability in him. He says that they are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are both being saved and those who are perishing. Death to death, life to life. So the ministry, the apostolic ministry, is utterly reliant upon the power of God in the Spirit. Utterly reliant for self, for sufficiency and for competency. Paul does not rely upon himself for anything. Any credentials that he had as a Pharisee, any credentials he had as a Hebrew of Hebrews, any credentials he had and being blameless as far as the law was concerned, as you remember in Philippians chapter 3, he regards as dung, as rubbish. He proclaims that he is nothing. He is the least of all saints. This is a man and his associates who rely upon the power, the competency, and the sufficiency of God in their life to accomplish the ministry that God has called them to. So they are not like, then, he creates the contrast, those who peddle the word of God. But rather he speaks as from sincerity, as from God, in the sight of God. We speak in Christ, he says. So Paul is laying forth here, setting forth for us, for him and for his time and for his associates in that time, the credentials and the character of new covenant ministry, a true minister of the gospel. Let me say this emphatically. A true minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing less than a minister of the New Covenant. Anybody who convolutes the Old Covenant into the New Covenant has disqualified themselves. They are no longer a minister of the Gospel in Christ. They are no longer legitimate. Every true minister of the Gospel is a minister of the New Covenant. The New Covenant, again, that Jesus died and shed his blood for, so that he would consecrate. And the new covenant that was affirmed at uh, the resurrection and empowered at the Pentecost with the outpouring of the Spirit. So Paul is building his case here for he and his associates being competent and being sufficient in their ministry. It turns out that the false teachers in Corinth were men of great credentials. They were great, had great oratory skills. They had letters of recommendation. And so the Corinthians, being the Greeks that they were, were quite impressed with that. And they began to call into question Paul's credentials as an apostle along with his associates. So Paul is asserting the standard the character and the nature of his ministry as being the authentic new covenant ministry. And he's very clear about that. He says, I don't need letters of recommendation. I don't need letters of commendation. You are my letters. He said, written on hearts, on tablets of flesh, not tablets of stone. On hearts of flesh, I should say. So, this brings us to the next point. The credential of a true minister of the gospel is transformed lives. The transformed lives of those to whom he ministers. So, every true minister of the gospel is a minister of the new covenant. And dare not convolute the old covenant into the new covenant. Dare not pour new wine into old wineskins, lest they burst and everything be lost. Listen, the new covenant is the uh, sine qua non of the gospel. Without the new covenant, you don't have the gospel, it is that without which you do not have anything. <laughs> Uh, and so, it's important to understand that this is no joke. This is not just a, an opinion. This is not just a suggestion. This is the Apostle Paul saying very clearly that those with whom he is competing, these false teachers that have come into Corinth, that are wooing the Corinthians uh, away from him, or at least would do so, are men who are not of God. Period. Period. That he and his associates are those who speak with sincerity, not peddlers of the word of God. Think of that for a moment. These false teachers were men of credentials. They were men of letters of commendation or recommendation. And they were peddlers of the word of God. Let me ask you, do we have much of that going on today? That is the norm today. Men who have great credentials, great letters of recommendation, are very popular, have great followings, have untold numbers of people following them, have huge mega churches even, and are peddlers of the Word of God. Not sincere, not of God, and yet they are predominant in American culture. So this is a very important point of discernment for you, beloved. Very important. This is not just some academic Bible study. This is a point where you get to sharpen your discernment and realize you don't want to submit, nor do you want to sit and listen to these teachers who, although they have great credentials, letters of commendation, and great oratory, and are very charming and very, very um, eloquent they are peddlers of the word of God. They are ministers of death. They are touting, they convolute the old covenant into the new covenant, and they ultimately are ministers, therefore, not of the spirit, but of the letter which kills. Very important. So the apostolic confidence is in the fact that the credentials that Paul looks to and points to are the credentials of transformed lives. Christ's letter of commendation, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts of flesh. Again, it's, it's hard to imagine, but there are not many churches these days that have that boast, who can say the the transformed lives of our congregants is our credential, is the evidence that we are ministers of life, ministers of the Spirit. So it isn't just how well somebody can preach. It just isn't how well somebody knows the Bible. The question is, what is the result of their ministry? Are the lives of those to whom they minister being transformed? And transformed how? Transformed into the image of Christ. Are those to whom they minister, are they people who are being equipped for the work of the ministry? Are they growing spiritually? Are they reaching some level of spiritual maturation? Or are they simply being entertained and inspired? which is the norm these days, to be entertained and inspired and to be able to shake the hand of the pastor on your way out and say, gee, pastor, that was a nice sermon. That's not the apostolic purpose. So the character and the nature of the ministers of the new covenant is absolutely critical for us to be clear about. So Paul says his apostolic confidence is not grounded in credentials or commendation letters as those who peddle the word of God. They're pedagogical, meaning they they like to teach, but they are teachers, not fathers. They They don't have relationship with their people. They don't have relationship with their students. They don't have relationship with the other Christians. They assume an elevated position. They like to think of themselves as pastors. They like to think of themselves as teachers and leaders. They like to, to enjoy the, the title of pastor, pastor in the marketplace. They like to think of themselves as reverend or some other title. They like to stand on the stage where they look down at their people. And they like to make great lofty words of boasting and, and and use great theological words and concepts that cause people to go tilt and, and gloss over. The people are not being fed. They're not being edified. But the, the ego and the lust for status to be a preeminent among the Christians is being fulfilled in this leader. He's a teacher, but he's not a father. He's not a spiritual father. So the apostles, apostolic sufficiency, excuse me, from God is that the true ministers of the Gospels walk in humility, not rely upon them, upon themselves, but upon the sufficiency of God. They are ministers of the new covenant, and they are clear about the newness of the new covenant. They don't convolute the two, the old covenant and the new covenant. And they will you will know them, you will know them by their fruits, you will know them by their own character, men of humility, kindness, and Christ-like character, as opposed to men who are boastful, arrogant, charming, eloquent, charismatic, but peddlers of the Word of God. they see that their the apostolic ministry sees itself as Drawn its sufficiency from the from God and not from themselves, not from their own talents and gifts. I remember at a seminary um, graduation when year Howard Hendrickson spoke. He was an, a pretty famous author back in the eighties and nineties. Wrote commentaries and and books and a theologian, and he spoke to this young gathering of seminarians, and he told them this. He said, My greatest fear for you is not that you'll fail, but that you will succeed. And there's a little bit of a gasp in the audience. And he said, What I mean by that is that, is that you will succeed relying upon your own natural gifts and talents. And then... Believe that God has caused your success when all you've done is nothing more than any CEO or other businessman could have accomplished in your church. You see, the Christian life, folks, the normal Christian life, always comes back to reliance upon God, upon being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in thought, word, and deed. And relying upon the Spirit alone, solus spiritus, to accomplish that. So God has made us sufficient, Paul said, as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And let me conclude now by emphasizing this most important of the contrasts. There are two ministries, one that brings death and one that brings life. There are two ministries, one that convolutes the old covenant, the old written code, into the new covenant. See, this is the important thing to hear here this morning. I'm not talking about legalism, hard legalism, even. Hard legalism is those who say, you have to do this to be saved. You're saved by works. Most charlatans these days know better than that. They know that most Christians would buck against that. So they they, they will say, no, no, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But then they'll set up false standards for you to stay saved, or to stay in favor with God, or to stay in fellowship with Christ. Standards that they alone set and oftentimes draw from the old covenant. I've mentioned them before. You should know them by now, probably. You've probably heard me say it a hundred times. But standards such as Sunday Sabbath keeping, standards such as tithing based upon Malachi three, or tithing a compulsory tithing period any kind of dietary laws, any kind of dress law, any kind of human rules that are imposed upon you that convey to you either implicitly or explicitly that somehow you must perform these things in order to maintain your place in the people of God is another gospel. It's a false gospel, and it deserves only a double cursing. But I'm telling you today, and the reason I'm doing this series is because the gosp- that gospel, that false gospel, is by far the predominant gospel in American culture today. So hard legalism is about how you get in, but soft legalism, which is just as deadly... Don't think because it's soft that it's not as deadly. It is just as toxic, just as deadly to your spiritual well-being, your spiritual health as hard legalism. Any standard that gets put up that says you must do this based upon some advantage to the, the clergy or to the church. You must participate on the sacraments on Sunday. You must take wine in the communion. You must 10% of your gross. You must come back on Sunday night for Sabbath service. You must do this, that, or the other thing. And sets up artificial standards that God Himself does not set. It's the soft legalism that I'm talking about here. That's the contrast. That's the contrast between the apostolic ministry of the new covenant and their character, and those who peddle the word of God. So Paul says very clearly, there's two ministries. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Tragically, most Christians today are laboring, sitting under credentialed men and even women of commendation who are quite uh, versed in the letter. But they do are not ministers of the Spirit. They are ministers of death, not of life. And it's a slow death. It's a death that you slowly just dry up spiritually. You begin to have all kinds of spiritual and mental and physical health problems, relational problems, and yet you're a good churchgoer. What's going on with that? That's the the grip of death. Death of counterfeit Christianity. The cruelty of heresy. Well, in the next episode, I want to talk with you, not only having moved beyond now, the character and the nature of New Covenant ministers, Having told you that the new covenant minister is clear that the new covenant is the fulfillment of all previous biblical covenants. And the new covenant stands uniquely alone as the holy singular covenant under which the Christian stands. Consecrated by the blood of Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that ministers of that covenant are ministers of life who walk in humility, in Christlikeness, in service to you. They don't lord it over you. They don't peddle the word of God. They teach you the word of God. They feed you the word of God. And so in the next episode, we're going to look at the new covenant ministry and its effects on you. We talked about how the fact that the credentials for a good minister of the gospel is transformed lives. Well, we're going to look closer at that. We're going to look closer at the effects of this ministry on you and what a transformed life looks like. That will be exciting. I hope you join me. And until then, may the Lord strengthen you and keep you in his grace. Amen.